What a blessing. I, I want to say one thing before we jump into the uh, sermon this morning. It's an interesting time of year. Hobby Lobby already has their Christmas stuff out, right? That lets you know Halloween's just around the corner. Um, it's a thousand degrees one day and then moderately pleasant for another and then you recognize it's just cloud cover and then you melt. It's also when people are getting ready to head off to college and make big decisions and commitments and things like that and we have uh, one of our own, this will be her last Sunday here as a local resident. She'll be a resident by proxy of course, but Miss um, Lauren, right, you head out on Tuesday, is that correct? So. Today, when we have lemonade and cookies on the porch, make sure you find your way. Um, she gives great hugs, and she's a hugger. And uh, just tell her you love her, and then do me a favor, and write her name down somewhere on a card, and pray for her every day this week, okay? It's a big transition for anybody. Uh, and then pray for her mama, and her daddy, and her pastor, and her friend, no, just pray for, for Lauren in that transition. It's gonna be a wonderful time. Lauren, we love you, we're going with you and uh, grateful. I'm not literally going with you. I mean, we're going with you in prayer, okay? Awesome. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter number eight. Thank you, Drew, for the reading this morning. Sometimes when uh, we have folks read the passage of Scripture, um, you're wondering, like, do I read the whole thing in context? There's a temptation in the natural to go like, do I really want him to end with, and they picked up stones to throw in the temple? Like, is that a good, hey, everybody, welcome to church kind of verse? But it's the truth. It's what happened, and folks have been editing the text for too long, and so we just let it stand where it is. If we don't have to look far and wide to find reminders of death and departing all around us. Uh, your calendar, probably each month, if you had marked them on there in a certain way, marks the transition of somebody, an anniversary or uh, a mark in the calendar, hey, this time last year or two years ago or whatever it is, this past week, we were reminded and our family celebrated with German chocolate cake and stories, uh, the two-year anniversary of Ashley's precious godly mother uh, going to heaven. Uh, just a few days before that, okay, couple of weeks and some days, um, we grieved with hope along with the Carlsons as their longtime friend and neighbor passed from this life. And then the week before that, I drove to Chesapeake, Virginia to attend a funeral of a 40, young 40-year-old 40 mother of four high schoolers who was diagnosed and succumbed to a very aggressive illness. And so you don't have to look far to be reminded that these bodies are decaying. And for many of us, it brings uh, thoughts of great memories and exciting things. For others, it brings great pain. Uh, grief can be an, incre an incredible, helpful thing in our life to clarify some things. Unhealthy grief can lead us to unhealthy things. That's why it's okay to invite Jesus, never set us up to be alone. He invited people in their lives so we could walk together through things. These Jews that were standing around Jesus, no doubt, um, if they're near the temple, they are near the burial grounds. I've been there. You can see within a stone's throw and in almost every direction, there are 
monuments and memorials and burial grounds where they can see some of their loved ones that have died, that probably lived holy lives. And they had friends and loved ones whose bodies had been planted in the ground uh, in, in accord with the Jewish customs of the day. And Jesus says to them, if you keep my word, you won't see death. And how do they respond? Like we do at funerals? When we hear that passage that I opened with this morning where we are like, man, praise God, Jesus is coming back. This life is not all there is. I've got him in the now, and when he comes back, I'll have him for eternity. How did they respond? Were they encouraged? Were they comforted? No, they were enraged because they were confronted with their own self-delusion. Let's dive into the text this morning, and I've arranged it in such a way. I've written a note. There are things that I want to say uh, to certain folks. I have questions for folks when we get to heaven. I'm sure you do too. After we worship Jesus a, a, a trillion years and just kind of praise and shout, I want to go find some people and ask some questions. Like, I want to ask Jonah, did you stink? You know, things like that are real important Bible questions. I want to ask uh, some of the old age Sunday school questions that make your Sunday school teachers some of you taught young people and they ask these questions and you scratch your head. They're worth asking. It's not germane to the text. I want to ask John if when he wrote this passage, was he trying to hurt preachers? Because the flow of it doesn't preach well. So I've got to rearrange a little bit of the, you'll see it a little bit rearranged uh, for some preaching rhythm this morning, but it's a powerful passage. Let's look first at the intense opposition to Jesus. The intense opposition to Jesus. Now I know those verses look scattered, and that's what I mean. We're going to look at the way these folks surrounding Jesus responded to this incredible promise of eternal life. Jesus didn't say, watch this, he didn't say, if you don't repent, I'm going to call down fire and brimstone on you. He didn't say, you've got to stay married to the same woman. You've got you've to walk with integrity. You've got to stop doing all these things that you love. He didn't go anywhere that he said, if you abide in my word... You won't taste death. And they lost their collective minds. Intense opposition to Jesus. Look at verse 48 with me. The the Jews answered him and said, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Wait, what? They're hurling insults like right at him. It was a major insult of the day. It was a racist slur that these Jews, that think they're holy people near the temple, are hurling at Jesus and then accusing him of having a demon. Look back at 47 and you get the context because Jesus just got through saying, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not from God. These are not from God. These men are not from God. Jesus then points out that all he does, he does to glorify the Father and the Father glorifies him. And they intensely reject the truth. You see, when people create a God in their own image, they will hold that God hostage to their own truth. And when God's truth drops in on the scene, they will reject Him because they will not submit to His authority. You and I have friends that seem friendly to Christianity until they consider the claims of Christ 
and the demands of the gospel on the lives of the believers. They're okay with us coming to church. They're okay with us singing songs. They're okay with us praying. They're okay with us saying amen. They're okay with us giving our money to religious things. But the moment we leave the building and try to live as salt and light, they go, whoa, 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 whoa. You're forcing your truth on me in this day. That's violence. That's violence. I don't feel safe. Give me a break. You're not safe. In fact, the sin that you're in love with is toxic and will destroy you. They're intensely opposed to Jesus. Peace-loving, I want everybody to go to heaven, Jesus. Again, the promise here is, if you'll follow me, if you'll abide in my word, you won't see death. And they go, they don't just go, I'm out, I'm going to go do this thing. They start snarling. Let's look at how they snarl. Well, before we do that, just know that this is characteristic of our day and age. We're around people who are vicious and vile. I can take you any day of the week to probably the closest things to the gates of hell, this side of eternity. And you can see the screamers and the vicious and vile people who hate life and love. They're so opposed to it, they can't control themselves. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3 that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. They'll follow their own sinful desires. Jude tells us that in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Jesus Christ predicted that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, you know this passage. For understand this, that in the last days there will come times of Difficulty. Now, that's one of the most gentlest renderings of the word. Savage times. I'm an, I like the way the ESV translates a lot of stuff, but that's a softball for the original words there. It's savage times. So, yes, difficulty is accurate, but savage times. People will become lovers of self. They'll be lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. didn't say not loving God. It says not loving good. What? Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. The Bible says in Acts that we are to look at the scoffers, the prophets call them out and say, be astounded and perish. God says, I'm going to do a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. We see this playing out in the Old and the New Testament. It's not just that people are rejecting God and think they've found something better. It's that they call the truth a lie. They call good evil. They call right wrong. Why? Because they hate the authority that God has as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They'll continue, these men, in John's account to ratchet up their rhetoric all the way into an act of violence. Now, we're going to examine Jesus' claim about death in a moment, but look at their response to Jesus' promise of eternal life, verse 52 
and 53. Can you look in your Bibles with me? Jesus, uh, the Jews then said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? They said, now we know. Do you see that passion, that certainty? They are 100% convinced that they are accurate in what they know. And it's anti-Christ. I want to tell you something. Sincerity and passion is not the measure of truth. You can be sincere and sincerely wrong in what you believe. And if you believe anything other than what this Bible says about Christ, you are wrong. It doesn't matter how many books you publish. It doesn't matter how eloquent you speak or how many crowds you can draw. It doesn't matter if the church draws 10 people and you draw 10 billion people. You are wrong if you stand in opposition to the God's word. In the mail this week, uh, Christy had just, sh uh, had just put the mail inside the, the office for us and I opened one of the packages because it looked like a book maybe that had been ordered. And uh, it wasn't. It said, for interested parties. Well, that's intriguing, isn't it? I don't think one of our elders or deacons ordered this because when I opened it, the book was black with no descriptors. I thought, what a nice notebook. And then I opened it up and it says, a documented refutation of the Christian belief. And it weaponizes and says that Christianity is a weapon of ideology. I made it about two sentences. I read the first two sentences. I flipped to the back to see if maybe he had converted and this was his very long conversion story and I'm like, nope. So we filed it where we usually file things like that, which is where they belong. But I, I want you to know that there are thinking incredible people, published people with intellect. Some have more degrees than a thermometer and they are wrong if they reject Jesus. They're wrong. Absolutely wrong. They're calling truth a lie here. They're calling good evil. They're calling right wrong. Does that sound familiar? I mean, Christians today are being insulted and marginalized and saying, if you don't toe the line on this new cultural truth that we've dreamed up today, and by the way, we've expanded the definition 15 times since we published it at 9.30 this morning, but if you're not towing the line on us, you are violent and you're awful. No, no, we're not the whack jobs there. They are. They've lost their minds. Romans addresses this with alarming clarity. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gives them up, verse 24, in the lust of their hearts to impurity and dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. If you're not abiding in the words of Christ, you are headed for destruction, and you are not heading for the life Jesus promised. The old-timers used to say, if you want to go to heaven, the Bible talks about, you got to get there the way the Bible says go. There is intense opposition to a promise of eternal life. Can you process that? This is not frontline, aggressive, worldview combating, but there are layers to this. You see, this means that everything that they've held on too tightly, they've got to turn loose of and let Christ hold them, and they refuse to do it. It's the reason people don't come to Jesus today. 
Now, what does Jesus do? He didn't take the debate classes that you and I get to take. He didn't take a lot of things on de-escalation, and he's Christ. I was telling Ashley as we were working, just uh, thinking through this as a family the other night, I said, do you think Jesus turned the volume down on this? He did not. And Ashley then says, in our room full of family, right, with teens, tweens, and all points in between, uh, she says, but that was Jesus, not us, right? So Jesus uh, turns the temperature up. He doesn't insult them, but he goes after the bad idea. By the way, notice here, the ones who are in the wrong attack the messenger and the message. They insult Jesus, not just the truth that he's proclaimed. We can, we can do better. We, there are a lot of people we don't agree with in this, in this world, but we've got to be careful to go after the idea and not attack the image bearer, right? Jesus, here's, notice the intentional claim he makes. He makes a very intentional claim. He knows that this is going to escalate, and he says exactly what he means to say. He always does. Look with me at verse 58 in the text this morning. Jesus said to them, Hey, here's something maybe you haven't thought about. Uh, see what you think about this. Nope. He says, truly, truly, verily, verily, with assurance. The expression here is one that says, this is non-negotiable. This is God speaking, and he says, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, some of you grammar police are going, I know what he means, but that sentence bothers me, right? I got it. I got it. You've got to understand this is the best English rendering we can do to the text. But, but Jesus here, and by the way, you've got liberal theological friends and, and God haters who say Christ never claimed to be God. This is the boldest, most in-your-face refutation of that in John's gospel. We've already seen clearly where he made statements and the Jews around him knew he was claiming to be God. That's why they wanted to persecute him. But there was language where you could see people going, well, that's not really, here it is. He's saying, I am. When he says, I am, uh, this does not de-escalate the situation. This is where they look for rocks in the temple. I made sure when I preached tough sermons that we don't have too many things you can throw in here, right? That this is where they get, they just lose their collective minds. They're ready to stone him right there. But there's a timetable. It's not time for Jesus to die. When he says, I am, he is uh, saying something monumental. And he connects it to Abraham, which is a double whammy uh, for these folks. He's affirming that he is better and superior to the prophets that they're trying to hang on to tightly to. He's affirming that he is better and superior to Abraham, to Moses, to Isaac and Jacob as well. You see, Abraham came into being. He has not always existed. But when Christ came on the scene and was born as a baby in a manger, Christ came on the scene in human form. He had always existed and will always exist. When he says, I am, it's a title of deity. And the Jews' response showed that they knew exactly what he was claiming. There was no, no lack of clarity in what he's saying. It's a reminder to those of us, so many doctrines at play just in that one sentence. It's a reminder to us uh, that Jesus is equal with God the Father and has always existed from all eternity. Think back with me, like when we got started in John's Gospel. If you flip back just a few pages, 
The Bible says, John writing, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5, that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is shining His light into dark places, and the darkness can't stop. I think maybe 50 years ago, maybe 60 years ago, I don't know. I know I got a lot of gray, and I know I preach like an old man, but I'm not quite that old. But a long time ago, there was this sense that the Christians living as salt and light in a pretty pro-Christian worldview America meant that we were the, the best of society. We were the sweeter than the normal sweetness, and, and we did more uh, things in a in a way that was toward nonprofit causes and things of that nature. Make no mistake, I, I think that's probably an over-idealized view of the way it was if you really look at the data, but that's not where we are now. If we stand out as salt and light, light repels darkness. It repels darkness. And salt can be an irritant in an open wound. It preserves, it does all of those things, but, but, but just know that, that we, the minority, we, uh, the blood-bought, we, the firstborn uh, uh, of God's creation in the new kingdom, we, the children of God, are an irritant to this world, and, and they will respond with vileness at times. And you'll think, what in the, where is this coming from? All I said was, do you know God loves you? And they go, Why would you say that? They wanted to bicker about their family tree. Jesus reminded them that he created the soil, the roots, and everything around it. He was there. All I can hear is Aslan saying, I was there when it was written. Makes me want to go watch that movie again. That's the closest I've ever gotten to having a shouting moment at a movie, right? I wanted to throw something. Two of you will get that later. That's fine. Jesus does a mic drop. He says he's the root and the soil. He says, I'm before anyone. It's the clearest claim in John's gospel that he is the God of Israel. He's the I am of Exodus 3.14. He doesn't just claim pre-existence. If he wanted to do that, he would have said, I was before Abraham. He doesn't say that. He says exactly what he means to say here. In Exodus 3.14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. All right, grammar, you ready to get it? Here's a, a better transliteration. I am the ising one, right? You just kind of lose your mind there, right? But that's this thing. I am the one in any point in time, I am. I've always been, I am. I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So we see this incredible opposition to this beautiful promise. And we see Jesus making this very, very incredible claim. It's just remarkable. And then we see this beautiful promise. Now I want to highlight the promise. Why would I go about the sermon in that order? Well, I want you to feel the weight and the cost of these words. And there was no way to get there except this way. They were not received well, yet Jesus keeps pressing in. And I believe the Lord would be glorified as we consider the majesty of the one who is saying it. This is not just a messenger from God. This is not just a prophet of God. This is God himself with flesh on 
saying, if you abide in me, you won't see death. What an incredible promise. Let's look at verse 51 together. I want to put it on the screen, and I'd like for us to say it out loud together. Would you join me, please? Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So how does somebody die but not die? If I were a six-year-old sitting in the sermon this morning, I'd be like, wait, what? Never see death? What does that mean? He says, truly, truly again. It's a reminder here. He's not hoping something works out well. He's stating absolute truth this morning. I'm going to break that into two parts. Before I break it into the part of, yes, we die, and no, we don't. (laughs) I I, want to just skip ahead to a text that I think will bless you this morning from John 11. Jesus is with Mary and Martha. You know the scene. Lazarus has died, and in verse 25 and 26 of John chapter number 11, if you want to flip there, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Praise God. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What a promise. He is the resurrection and the life. Though he die, yet he'll never die. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto man once to die. And after this comes the judgment. Death is a reality. It's a result of the curse. We experience God's judgment against our rebellion in the reality of death. Suffering and death, even though they're normalized now because we've been at it for a couple thousand years, right? Suffering and death are not normal in the way that God created everything to exist. Sin caused suffering and death. The corruption, decay, and death in our world are a part of God's punishment for humanity's rejection of Him. And I want to remind you this morning, you might be good at a lot of things. And I'm looking, if I just like peruse the sides here, I see folks that I know are at the top of their game in so many areas of life. But you don't get to cheat death. You can try. In his book, Remember Death, Matthew McCullough recounts the incredible life of an American hero. I don't know if anyone who survived more near-death experiences than World War II Airman Louis Zamperini. After volunteering for the Army Air Forces, he survived months of flight training when thousands of others did not. He survived bombing missions under heavy fire, one of which left nearly 600 bullet holes in the fuselage of his B-24. After mechanical failure sent his plane plunging into the Pacific Ocean, he survived the crash. And that's where his story of survival starts. He lived for weeks on a small inflatable raft, baked by the sun, tossed by violent storms. He had nothing to drink but whatever rainwater he could collect. He had nothing to eat but fish and birds he caught with his hands and ate raw. He fought off swarms of sharks that constantly followed his raft and often lunged on the raft to pull him in. He dodged the bullets of a Japanese plane that he thought was his rescuer. So he's waving them down and they start shooting at him. 
Not a good day. Think you had a bad Monday? He had a few. Zamparini spent 47 days on the raft, longer than anyone else had ever survived adrift at sea. And then when he finally reached land, he was immediately captured by the Japanese and spent the next two years as a prisoner of war, transferred from one horrific camp to another where he endured uh, forced labor, starvation, disease, and merciless torture. When his camp was finally liberated, he was skin and bones, barely clinging to life. More than one in three of his fellow American prisoners had died, yet somehow he survived. Remarkable, isn't it? Nearly 70 years after his return from war, though, Zamperini faced what his family called his greatest challenge of life, a battle with pneumonia. And on July 2nd, 2014, after a valiant fight of 40 days, Louis Zamperini, possibly the greatest death cheater around, died. You can't cheat death. You might be really good at it. You can have books written about you and be good at it. You can run, but you can't hide. It comes for all. 100% of the living have an appointment with death. So how do we live with hope and hold that tension? The New City Catechism, which follows in with the, some of the Heidelberg version, I think gives a beautiful phrasing of this. What is our only hope in life and death? What's our hope? Look at it. That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Death is a certainty. It brings grief with it too. But grief has a way of clarifying what we are hoping for. It also clarifies where our true hope lies. Augustine describes this grief as a soil for the living. He says grief can become the soil where living hope takes root and grows strong. But Jesus draws a line here among folks who no doubt were grieving the loss of loved ones and says, if you abide in my word, you'll never see death. If we take in the whole counsel of scripture, we see that it becomes clear that believers can have a hope that their covenant-making and covenant-keeping God will keep his promises to overcome the forces of death in this world. Jesus shows us the way. We're only in John chapter number 8, and he's already showing us a way that his power can conquer the effects of sin and death in the lives of those who follow him. They will know the truth. We can know the truth, and the truth will make and set us free. Because of our union with Christ, we can live and live forever. Our bodies die, and our bodies lie to us. They look like they're sleeping. That's why some of the New Testament writers write that way poetically. They're sleeping. Well, those who are asleep, it's their bodies that are sleeping. They lie in the grave. The Bible says until the last trumpet sounds. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read that earlier. The trumpet will sound and those dead bodies will be raised imperishable. But when our bodies die, we don't die. And I know this is elementary, but we need to be reminded of this and feel the weight of it this morning. We don't die. Our spirit, our soul lives on for eternity. We will have passed from dying to life, eternal life, if we're in Christ. Unbroken, 
unended life. When we were born again, we received the gift of life from the God of life. Ephesians 2 tells us this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. Here and now, you and I have life abundantly regardless of our pay scale, our socioeconomic status. Because we have Jesus, we have everything. And he didn't get us out of the miry clay and set us on a rock and say, go figure it out. He gave us his word. He gave us his spirit to lead us and guide us. And he gave us the family of God to be in covenant with, to go through life together. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. We're able to fellowship with God. Does that ever blow your mind? You get up in the morning and go through your morning time with Jesus. And do you ever take a moment and stop? I'm communing with the God that spoke everything into existence. Like I can't even get two words out sometimes before a cup of coffee. And this God spoke things into existence. And he's inviting me to come into his presence. We get to commune with God. We get to know him and love him and obey him and experience him and speak with him and and him speak to us through his word. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is life for us. For us to live is Christ. And for the believer, the sinner who has been saved by grace, washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus, this fellowship never ends. Ends, it only gets better. Death unlocks something that our mortal bodies prevent us from. There's no sin to combat when we're in heaven. We get eternity unseparated from the lover of our souls. Man, it better be more than the streets of gold that have an allure for you to the kingdom that shall never fade. Our fellowship with God is never broken once we pass through the surly bonds of death. Oh, death. Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the implication. Because we know that we don't have to fear death. Because we're not afraid of dying. Because we know we don't have to see death the way those who are outside of Christ have to see death. It affects the here and now. What does that context go on and say? Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, I know that's a great inspirational verse to get in a card. Somebody says, I'm thinking about you. Hang in there, buddy. And then a picture of the cat hanging onto the ledge. I don't know if they still do that. But here's the deal. The context of this verse basically is saying, be courageous. You could charge hell with a water pistol if you wanted to because you've got the God of eternity on your side. Go storm the gates of hell and proclaim life to those who are dying. God's given us victory. Victory over death. And if we've got victory over death, come on. Everything else is a stubbed toe. This is a promise for sinners saved by grace for us to live, love, give, and serve with eternity in view. Hallelujah. But when the self-righteous heard this promise, they were violently opposed to it. How can you oppose yourself to life? Well, they want life. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Few people want to follow Jesus. Because as one of my friends says, he's 
going up a hill, a lonely hill, to die alone, and he's bidding you to come die with him. Ouch. When sinners heard this, their eyes and ears are open by the Holy Spirit. They repent and believe on Jesus, and they never see death the way the rest of the world does. As Julia comes this morning, and we're about to have a moment to respond to this, there are some that look at this text and say, they conclude, I I don't want to go too heady on you this morning, but give me 60 seconds to deal with something called the doctrine of annihilation. The doctrine of annihilation states that um, hell is not eternal, that hell is not ongoing, unending suffering, that hell, essentially, you... Your punishment is consumed at some point and you cease to exist and that goes. Here's the thing, as we were talking about this as a family, my, my wife says, like that's better. Like, as if that somehow makes anything better. Um, this is not a proof text for that bad doctrine. Grace Covenant doesn't hold to that doctrine. Your pastor doesn't hold to that doctrine. Well, we believe what Jesus said about heaven and hell. They're both eternal. One, the, the, the blessed save are resurrected. Our bodies are resurrected, glorified to eternal life with Christ and the other to eternal condemnation. It's a reality. It's not there, but it's in the subtext of what we cover today. He's speaking to those who are rejecting him, and he's saying, if you, if you come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, if you come to me and take my yoke on you, if you come to me and abide in me and my word, you won't taste the death that you're going to taste now. 19th century Swiss pastor and hymn writer, Henry Mann. I hate that Norm's not here. He loves when I quote really old dead people. He captures uh, this incredible promise this way. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road, and to join the saints who dwell on high who found their home with God. It's not death to to close the eyes long dim by tears and wake in joy before your throne delivered from our fears. It is not death to fling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you evermore. Oh Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. Yes, we die, but for those in Christ, no, we don't. Do you believe this? Let's pray.
the singers come this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your loving kindness and for this promise of eternal life in you. You so love the world that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins while we were yet sinners. You loved us that way. Whosoever believes on you should not perish but have, and here it is, everlasting life. Father, I pray that we would live and love and speak and give and serve in a way that reflects that our hearts and affections are set on you. We're not afraid of death. Lord, we love you and bless you. Claim these promises this morning as you appropriate them to our lives. In Jesus' name, let the church say amen.